2 Kings chapter 20, if you'll join me there in your Bibles. As we continue our study through 2 Kings together, we're looking at the life of King Hezekiah. Uh, We kind of come now towards the end of his reign. Remember, Hezekiah was one of the uh, good and godly kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. And at this time, we really kind of have our focus as we finish out 2 Kings on the southern kingdom of Judah because the northern kingdom by this time, uh, which was referred to as Samaria, has already been conquered by the Assyrians. Uh, we saw last time in our study together that the Assyrians came down and they uh, presented a, a strong presence of invasion and attack against the southern kingdom of Judah and were threatening them, were trying to intimidate them and infuse doubt and discouragement, uh, causing them to not want to look to the Lord or to trust Hezekiah's words as their king who was telling them to rely on the Lord that God would come through. And yet in the end, we saw this incredible miracle as the Lord gave word to Hezekiah that he was going to come through, protect them and deliver them. And we saw at the end of chapter 19 last time, that it came to pass on a certain night in one night it says that an angel of the Lord went through the camp of the Assyrians chapter 19 verse 35 and it said that 185,000 of their soldiers were put to death at once and again just by one angel uh, it doesn't even tell us that this was Michael the archangel or it just says one angel one angel again the power of God's emissaries, the power of these angelic spirits that God can send forth. And and again, please keep in mind, if that's what one angel can do, who is a created being, a created spiritual being by God himself, who rules and reigns upon the throne, how much power does God have? If one angel can accomplish that in one night and one angel is able to go forth on God's behalf and in one Literally, one day, God is able to change everything. Changes everything. Sets them free, brings deliverance and victory. And the same the Lord can do in our lives. Well, uh, this incredible work of God happens. And now as we come to chapter 20, we get sort of some of the final things we're told about some of the events in Hezekiah's life. Again, this is, as I said, a good king. He was a godly king. He wasn't flawless. All of the good and godly kings, as well as all of the good and godly men and women we have in Scripture, uh, they still had their shortcomings. They had their weaknesses and their flaws, and Hezekiah had his as well. Uh, But yet, regarding the fact that he was a good and a godly man, notice verse 1 of chapter 20 says, It was in those days that Hezekiah was sick and near death. So take notice. Here is Hezekiah. He's a follower of the Lord. He's a faithful man of God. He's someone who's serving the Lord, who loves the Lord. And yet, take notice, the Bible tells us that he falls sick and that his sickness was actually something that was terminal. It says that he was sick and near death. We don't know exactly what the disease condition was other than it told here that it was a terminal condition. We're going to read a little bit further down. Uh, in verse 7 there that there was some type of a boil or a manifestation some tumor perhaps something that was uh, either the byproduct of this illness or the very thing that was causing the terminal condition in his life Uh, but he's in the latter stages of life and again we see as we've seen many times before uh, that those who love the Lord those who serve the Lord are not immune from illness 
uh, from sickness, from disease, uh, from things that ultimately can cause our bodies to be plagued, even to the point where it becomes terminal, and that ultimately is what causes our death. I mean, keep in mind, uh, the reality is every one of us, unless we're raptured, is more than likely the greater percentage of us on this planet, more than likely every one of us is going to die from the last thing that we get sick of. Uh, You know, you get sick, God helps you get better. You get sick, you get an antibiotic. You have some health condition, maybe you get a surgery or you get some treatments and God helps you get better. But ultimately, because these bodies are frail, because of the curse of sin from Genesis chapter 3, illness and disease and sickness and what we often call Murphy's Law, things are always breaking down in your house, right? Your car, doesn't matter what you drive, it just keeps falling apart. You ever notice that? Your house just keeps falling. Well, the same thing happens with these earthly human bodies. They just keep breaking down and falling apart. And we live in a world that has the presence of illness and sickness and disease. And so we are not immune from such things as God's children. It's not a matter of, well, if we don't have enough faith or if there's some sin in our life. I mean, this is just ridiculous, the health and wealth, prosperity gospel that's conveyed in some parts of the church. It's completely unbiblical. Uh, There's no biblical substantiation for that. Uh, And so here, this good man, godly man, it says he becomes sick and he realizes that he's in a terminal condition And that becomes more evident in verse 1 when Isaiah the prophet, who was, it seems, uh, the voice of the Lord in that day, and interesting to see that King Hezekiah and Isaiah really seem to have this uh, very close kinship and relationship. Isaiah prophesied during the course of a few different kings uh, in Israel and Judah's history, and I like this. He was just someone who was a prophetic voice in the lives of those who served in political positions and such was the situation with Hezekiah. So he gets a visit from Isaiah the prophet, and this is probably kind of like a, a pastoral sick visit. You know, Isaiah the prophet is the, the man of God. He's the minister. And here King Hezekiah, he's sick, and he's in a terminal condition. And, and so he thinks, hey, I need to go and pay a visit to him. And so as Isaiah comes in, uh, probably Hezekiah the king is thinking, well, that's nice. He came to you know, pray for me to pay a hospital visit like maybe a minister or a man of God should. And, and yet when Isaiah comes in, look what happens. Verse 1, he says to him, thus says the Lord, set your house in order for you shall die and not live. So the word of the Lord comes through Isaiah the prophet to King Hezekiah. Listen, God wants you to know that this illness is not something that you're going to recover from. That this disease, this health issue is something that is going to be the culmination of your life. That your time is limited, that this sickness, he says, is going to result in death. And he says, therefore, set your house in order. Get your affairs in order, he's saying. And again, the idea there is it's basically just God's way of saying prepare for death. Uh, And honestly, that's something that from a perspective of stewardship, we all to some degree really should do. It's, It's wise for any one of us, for all of us, not just when we're sick and we have a terminal condition and we know because maybe the doctor has told us because of their diagnoses, hey, look, it would be good now to start to get your affairs in order. Uh, because there's nothing else we can do because of your condition or I mean sometimes we're told that as as human beings we hear that kind of news or there's some awareness that's brought to our attention look it's time to get your affairs in order 
there, there's really nothing else that can be done and, and your time is going to be limited. And certainly if we're good stewards, we should do that. We should set our house in order, whether that's you know maybe taking care of some things financially and legally and doing what we need to do as good stewards so that we are properly handling our affairs and we make it easier on our families. It's hard enough, right? When we go through the process of somebody in a family dying and all the difficulties that go along with that, the logistics. So it's wise for us to be good stewards as God's people, whether it's with our financial and legal affairs. Uh, Sometimes getting our house in order pertains to maybe just uh, dealing with some uh, open-ended issues, Maybe it's relationship things that we've left lingering. Maybe it's some situation that exists between us and a relative or another person and, and God's saying, look, you, you need to get the house in order. You need to make that right. There needs to be an apology or some forgiveness or there needs to be some things conveyed Why there's still time to convey those things. And sometimes there's a need for us to do that, to put our affairs in order and to get our house in order. And certainly the most important way to get our house in order and to prepare uh, is certainly to make sure that we're we're right spiritually and eternally and that we're ready to meet our maker uh, because that's going to happen it's interesting that the bible refers to our physical body like a tent and like a house Uh, so in some ways setting your house in order also directly applies to the fact that uh, your body is a temporary tent and you're going to move out of this temporary tent and into an eternal dwelling which is going to either be in eternity in the presence of God or suffering damnation in the torment and the eternal suffering of hell and so the Lord says look uh, put things in order Make sure that when you depart from this body, when your spirit, the eternal part of you, is released from this physical dwelling, the body on earth, that you are ready to meet the Lord, to be in the presence of the Lord, that you have come to a place where you've made peace with God. And that, of course, only happens through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 that, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that when we recognize that we are sinful, that we don't deserve to go to heaven, that we can't work our way into heaven or get into heaven, but we understand that Jesus died on the cross for our sins to take our punishment, and then he rose again from the third day that he might be the savior for our sins and the, the one who can give to us the gift of eternal life. It's when we come to Christ and we receive that gift of eternal life from him, we've set our house in order, as it were, spiritually. The Bible says, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but... The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. But it's a gift that only Christ can offer to us. And so it's imperative that we set our house in order. And and look, the reality is whether we hear that getting close to our deathbed or whether we hear that sooner rather than later, my encouragement is don't wait. Don't wait. Death is an appointment that is awaiting for every single one of us. The Bible says it's appointed for men to die once and then the judgment. It is the one appointment that everyone must keep. You can't cancel that appointment with death. No matter what you do, you can juice and exercise and do everything you want. Go organic, give the health food store all the money in the world. You're still going to die. It's going to happen. And and you can fight it off and try, but it's an appointment you are going to keep. And here's the thing. No man knows the day and the hour of that appointment. 
It's the one appointment we all must keep, and you don't know the hour and the day of that appointment. That's why it's better to prepare in advance. And so God says here, look, set your house in order, Hezekiah. He says, you're going to die. You're not going to live. It's time to be prepared. And certainly we should all be prepared for death and whatever that looks like spiritually, financially, with relationships. We want to do that. So heavy words Hezekiah hears in this situation. And so verse 2 says, he turned his face toward the wall and prayed, saying, remember me now, O Lord, I pray. I have walked before you in truth with a loyal heart. And I have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. So as he hears this news, I mean, that's, that's pretty heavy news. I've been with people before. You probably have as well, maybe when they've heard kind of heavy news like that, a, a serious cancer diagnosis, or there's really nothing else that can be done. And there's kind of that, that heavy awareness that sinks in of their condition, that they're terminal in their health condition. And that, that's a heavy thing. That's a difficult thing. And so here, naturally, very understandably, he begins to grieve. He begins to weep. It says that when he hears this, it's not out of disrespect. It's not that he's pouting. Don't get the picture wrong here. It just says he turns his face to the wall and he begins to grieve. He begins to weep over this heavy reality that he's about to face. And it says that he just begins to pray. He begins to talk to the Lord. And in some ways, I think this is wonderful because when he gets some really heavy news in his life that's very hard to swallow, this shows me that he is a man of God because the first thing he does is he doesn't turn to Isaiah and he doesn't ask. The first thing he does is he turns to the Lord. It's almost as if he says, you know what? This is really heavy. This is really hard. I, I, I need you to give me a moment. I, I just need to work this through with the Lord. I just need to turn to the Lord. And he turns away from Isaiah, from whoever else was in the room, perhaps at that moment, and he just turns his eyes to the Lord and he begins to just pour out his heart and process it between him and the Lord. We get a little glimpse of some of perhaps what he prayed here, certainly probably not exhaustive, but he just begins to say, Lord, remember me. You know how I've been faithful. And he just begins to share his heart with the Lord. And, and I think this is very beautiful because, you know, when we go through something heavy or Maybe we get some really uh, traumatic news or something difficult comes into our life. I think that's the time above all times when it's not the best thing to do right away maybe is to turn to people. And that tends to be what we do. And I'm not diminishing the value of, you know, sharing with somebody, have a close, you know, maybe a person in your life. Certainly nothing wrong with that. But the first place we need to look is we need to look to the Lord. We need to turn away from everybody else on earth because the reality is some heavy things we go through, no human being is going to be able to help us. And they're not going to be able to help us process the emotions of it and the distress and the thoughts and the feelings and the fears and even to be able to come through if there's something that perhaps we need to help us and really we kind of need a miracle maybe in certain situations. So he turns to the Lord beginning to grieve turns his face to the wall, starts to just pray to the Lord, as we also ought to do. And look what happens. This very interesting event unfolds. Verse 4 says, And it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court. So Isaiah delivers this news, it seems. And then he just departs. Maybe when he sees 
uh, Hezekiah turn his face to the wall and just start crying and praying. He wants to show some respect and dignity, dignity to him as a king as well as he thinks, you know, look, I, I want to be respectful to him. He just needs to process this. I need to give him some time. And he doesn't sit there and try and offer all kinds of counsel and insight. You know, sometimes as God's people, we think that's the best thing to do, right? Well, listen, I mean, he doesn't, well, come on. I mean, God works all things for the good now, Hezekiah. And he doesn't do any of that. Isaiah just, he says what God wants him to say. And then he just walks away. You know, sometimes in difficulty, less is more. <laughs> that happened with Job's friends, remember? They did really well when Job went through all the catastrophe and the tragedy. They showed up and it says they sat with Job for a number of days while Job was grieving. And they were doing really great as a support system until they did what? Started talking. And then as soon as they started talking, the whole thing went downhill. And so Isaiah here, he, he's giving them some space. Sometimes you got to give people space a little bit, give them some time and patience. So he, he departs and he's not even out of the, uh, it seems, you know, kind of palace grounds. He's walking out. He gets to the middle court that the word of the Lord comes to him saying to Isaiah, return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. I have heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. Now, Again, very interesting what happens here. One of the unique miracles in the word of God that we have and one of the unique occasions when God responds very powerfully to the tears and the grief and the sorrow and the prayers of one of his servants. Isaiah's walking out of the palace grounds. He doesn't even get outside of the middle court area. And all of a sudden, the word of the Lord comes back to him. And imagine this for Isaiah. It must have been tough. He's just walked into the king, not just any person, the king, and said, King, thus says the Lord, uh, get your house in order because you're going to die and you're not going to live. And now he's halfway out of the palace grounds. And the Lord says, uh, Isaiah, change your plans, buddy. Could you go back in? <laughs> And tell him, listen, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears and the sorrow in your heart. And he says, and tell him that I'm going to heal him. And not only am I going to heal him, so powerful will be my restoration. Literally within three days, you're going to get up and you're going to be back worshiping in the house of the Lord again. And he says, and then tell him on top of that, I'm actually going to extend his life for 15 more years. I'm going to add another 15 years onto his lifespan. God was going to graciously restore back years to him that wouldn't have been. Now, uh, we could sit there all day long and try and wrestle out mentally. And if you're more smart and spiritual than me, you're free to do that. What exactly happened there? Was this always God's plan to do this? And, uh, you know, did he kind of send Isaiah first to test the heart of Hezekiah to see how he would respond and if he would trust the Lord? Is this God who kind of changed his mind? And he, he, he was going to die, but yet when his servant prayed and wept and pleaded with the Lord that God had mercy and God intervened and said, look, okay, my permissive will is that I will heal you. And I will allow you to live 15 more years instead of dying. Uh, could that be right? Yes, 
Could the first thing be right? Yes. Could there be three other scenarios? Yes. And when we get to heaven, we can ask God. (laughs) What's amazing is that the Lord shows incredible compassion upon this individual who just turns his face to the wall and he begins to pray and he begins to weep. And I think Hezekiah cared more about not just his own selfish interests. I think he cared about the people. Again, remember, he was a leader. He was a king. And I think God seeing all those things, whatever the reason and however it unfolded, the Lord decides at this moment to bring healing into his life, to show him his mercy and compassion, to show the grace of God in a powerful way to this man in response to his prayers and his tears and to show him the great love and mercy of God. And he sends Isaiah back in to give him this message that he's going to be healed and live another 15 years. Now, as I said, think from Isaiah's perspective as he's going to have to go in and give this message. I look at this and I think, boy, how important for Isaiah that he learned how to stay current with the Lord, right? Because just prior to this, the Lord said, this is what I want you to go in and say. And then he's walking out and the Lord says, Isaiah, I'm going to call an audible here. Now I want you to go back in. And maybe if Isaiah is anything like you or I, he's thinking, maybe that's not God. I mean, because the Lord just told me to say, and now he's telling me to say, and maybe in his own mind, he's thinking, I mean, how could that be God? I mean, God's not double-minded and God said, and maybe he wrestled like you and I did. But look, at the end of the day, the important thing is this is why it is so important for us to stay current with the Lord, to be listening to what God is saying to us in the present tense, not only every day, but every hour and obeying the Lord. This reminds me of the story in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter uh, 22. Remember, God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, remember? He tells him, take the wood and the fire and go up and sacrifice your only son there on Mount Moriah. And so Abraham obeys, he goes up the mountain, and he gets everything set up, and literally it seems he's got the wood and the fire and the, and the knife is raised, and then the Lord says what to Abraham? Stop! Don't do it. And then he shows him that he would provide and he he provides that ram in the thicket that he would come and and make a sacrifice and in the mount of the Lord it was provided. God showed that he was, you know, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider and that the Lord would provide a sacrifice even as though the knife should fall upon us and the wrath of God should come upon us. God provided a substitute, a sacrifice in Jesus and the picture of all those things. But again, imagine if Abraham wasn't staying current with the Lord. And Abraham said, now I know God told me to sacrifice him. And if he would have just disregarded the current word of the Lord, he would have made a bloody mess, no pun intended. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because he listened to the Lord and he wasn't going on yesterday's news. He wasn't going on two days ago's news. He was going on this in this hour. This is what the Lord has just told me to do. And so I need to be obedient and yielded and flexible and so important for us that we stay current with what God is saying to us. And Isaiah here gets this new revelation. But again, this is part of speaking for the Lord at times. This is part of following the Lord and being useful. He goes back in now with this new message to bring good word and encouragement to the king. And I imagine this must have been a great encouragement to Hezekiah's heart to hear what God was going to do, even as at times he will have mercy upon us in our prayers and in our tears as well. So verse 7, it says, Then Isaiah also said in the midst of the delivery of this message, Take a lump of figs. So they took it and laid it on the boil 
and he recovered. Now take notice. Again, I love how the word of God purposely, the Holy Spirit incorporates both what is extremely practical and natural together with what is supernatural and miraculous. He has a health condition that he's going to die from and God says, look, I am going to heal him. You notice it back in verse 5, very clear. Look at it again. I've heard your prayer. Here's the message. I've seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. That's called miraculous healing from God. Divine healing. I will heal you. And then God tells Isaiah, who's bringing the message in, take some... Uh, Figs, a lump of figs, this was often a, like a poultice, a paste that they would use in a medicinal capacity in that day in the ancient culture. And it was something medicinal at times that was used for health conditions. And so in a sense, he says, look, tell him I'm going to heal him, but also tell him to utilize some medicine in the process of how I'm going to bring about the healing. And, and again, to me, this is very helpful because it shows that there is tremendous balance in never thinking to an extreme that if God's going to heal and God can heal, that that means we don't need medicine, we don't need doctors, we don't need to be good stewards with our body and our health because if God's going to heal, God will heal miraculously. Yeah, and God can do that. But God also can use medicine and physicians and, and medical assistance to help in the process. God does it right here. Paul tells Timothy in the New Testament, we have an example as well. He tells Timothy, take a, and take and use a little bit of wine for your frequent stomach infirmities. Again, Paul doesn't tell Timothy, drink a little wine. He says, use a little wine. Because you know people who say, well, yeah, Paul said, take a little wine. You can have a little wine. Timothy, enjoy it, young man. He said, Timothy, use wine. And it was used in a medicinal capacity. Not indulge a little bit because you have freedom and, and grace. Use it, he says, in a medicinal capacity. Now, could Paul be used by the Lord to heal people miraculously? Yeah, we see it all throughout the book of Acts, right? But yet Paul, his most treasured protege, his mentor, one who was mentoring in the faith, he says, Timothy, I've prayed for you. You're not getting better. Take some medicine. Take some medicine. It'll help you feel better. Take advantage of medical care. And again, I, I think this is so beautiful to see in this miraculous healing there was also this application of some additional uh, help with this lump of figs that was put on this boil that caused him to recover. Now, in the midst of this dialogue, it's almost as if there's the story as a whole. The Bible sort of takes us back and kind of steps back now to kind of give us and fill in a little more details of what happened in the conversation between Hezekiah and Isaiah. Because verse 8 says that Hezekiah said to Isaiah, probably as this dialogue was happening now, what is the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord the third day? So he says, how can I know? Is there some indication that will, will confirm to me that indeed I'm going to be healed by God? And Isaiah said to him, this is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing which he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward 10 degrees or backward 10 degrees? And Hezekiah answered, it is an easy thing for the shadow to go down 10 degrees. No, but let the shadow go backward 10 degrees. So basically Isaiah says, look, this is the confirmation, the sign to indicate to you that the Lord is going to fulfill what he promised to you. And he, again, he says, you pick. God's offering you the opportunity. 
He's talking about the sundial, where in that day it seems they would use sort of a setup with a sundial as the sun would move to cast a shadow for them to be able to determine what time of the day it was. So in essence, he says, look, on this sundial mechanism, he says, what do you want? Do you, he says, basically, do you want God to, uh, to, to cause the, the, the shadow to go forward? Do you want God to turn time ahead and make it look like time moved ahead? Or do you want it to look like time got turned backwards and the shadow to go backwards 10 degrees? And, you know, Hezekiah, much like you and I, he picks the harder option. He says, well, to go forward, that would seem like the easier thing to do because time's always moving forward. That's just natural. So how would I really know if it's just 10 degrees forward? Maybe, maybe that just kind of was a natural progression. But he knew in order for that to go backward, that was going to be something that was unusual, something that would somewhat have to be miraculous for time to be turned back, for the shadow to go backwards. So he asked that the shadow would be turned backward 10 degrees, verse 11, so Isaiah, the prophet, cried out to the Lord. He now prays, Lord, you've heard what he's asked. I have no idea how you're going to do it, God. (laughs) I have no idea how you're going to turn back the... The sundial, he says, in the shadow, but it says the Lord brought the shadow 10 degrees backward by which it had gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. So somehow the Lord causes this shadow, it says, to go 10 degrees backwards. Now, there are those that are much more brilliant than you and I who have spent countless hours trying to figure out well exactly how did that happen i mean was it just a refraction of light and so did god in some way bend light well i think god can bend light if he wants to i don't think that's real complicated for the one who spoke light into existence or i mean in order for that to happen some will say well what that means is that god literally would have had to stop the rotation of the earth completely not only stop it from spinning and bring it all to a screeching halt, you know, er, just stop the whole earth. And then that would have meant, well, all the oceans would have, whoosh, would have sloshed off out in the outer space and God would have had to hold them all in. And then he'd have to turn the earth back 10 degrees the other way. Did God do that? I, you know, the Bible says that God controls everything. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. It's possible. Again, when you get to heaven, you can ask God how he did it. The bottom line is God also could, in a very localized way, just go, for one man if he wants to. (laughs) Doesn't mean God had to stop the whole world to make something happen in this one isolated person's life in one unique situation. But I'll tell you this, I think God loves people so much, he wouldn't be opposed to doing that if he had to. I think God loved Hezekiah so much. I think God loves you so much that if God had to stop the whole world to do something miraculous in your life, I think he'd do it. I think God cares about people enough that whatever it takes, he'll do whatever is necessary. I mean, consider what God did with Jesus. That's pretty incredible. Yet God, in a sense, intervened and and stopped what was happening in the whole world, the plague of sin, by sending his son. So this amazing miracle happens to blow the mind, no doubt, of Hezekiah and Isaiah and to truly confirm there's no way that could have happened except by divine occurrence. And you know what? Sometimes the Lord will, for his purposes and glory, work in such a way, and we may even at times say, Lord, I need you to make it really clear. Can you do something, please, Lord? I just, I don't want to think it's just something natural or some coincidence. Lord, can you please just work in some way that it's so evident 
that I can't mess it up. I've been there, done that, that I can't mess it up, that this has to be an, an act of God. And you know what? I think God's merciful and sometimes God meets us where we're at. I'm not saying we should chase signs and wonders, but I think God's compassionate. And I think perhaps if we need confirmation sometimes in our life, the Lord's not opposed to intervening, to do something to help us in some way. So another miracle, the sun dial goes back 10 degrees as he cries out to the Lord. And it's interesting that the Bible tells us that when this miraculous event happened attached to the 185,000 being destroyed in that one night in the battle that we read about in the last chapter, that all of a sudden the fame of Hezekiah began to spread. And he began to uh, really prosper and people were sending him gifts and presents and he became very famous and people became very curious about what was going on there in Judah. And it's during this time that it seems, unfortunately, the heart of Hezekiah became lifted up a little bit in pride as we start to see. Chapter uh, 20, verse 12 says, At that time, Baradoc Baladon, the son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. Now, at this time, Babylon was nothing like the power of Assyria, but they were sort of a, a gradual up-and-coming power and empire at this time. Ultimately, they will be the next world-dominating empire after Assyria. Babylon will come into power. But at this time, they're nothing really of intimidation or threat. They, they, they look rather uh, as if they're something of no real consequence. But they show a curiosity in what's happening in Judah. So it says they send this present to Hezekiah during his illness and Hezekiah perhaps maybe invited them or they make a visit with some messengers. Verse 13 says Hezekiah was attentive to them, perhaps even maybe a little impressed by them because it says he, why they were there, showed them all the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment and all of his armory and all that was found among his treasures. And there was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Uh, it kind of begin to get the indication, show, 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 almost sounds like a show off a little bit. So these ambassadors come from Babylon and perhaps Hezekiah's thinking, you know, maybe I should make an alliance with them. They seem to be gaining some power and maybe they would be a, a good uh, kind of friendship and established relationship to ultimately hold off the Assyrians. So he begins to kind of be impressed by them and he wants to impress them. So he's showing them everything in his kingdom, all of his wealth. It says he shows them all of his armory, all of his military arsenal and power. Now look, uh, this is a future enemy. It's never wise to expose yourself to an enemy. But he's not thinking, he's being naive. And so he's making these concessions and he's making himself vulnerable by small concessions. And he has no idea these concessions earlier on are going to lead to his great downfall later on. And look, it's a good reminder for all of us because sometimes we make small concessions, small compromises. We let our walls down. We start to give access to certain things in our lives and we just think, oh, well, they're no big deal. I mean, that's not something that really is of major influence. It's nothing that's ever really going to take control of me or harm me in any way. And the reality is it may be in that initial moment it's not. But when you start making concessions and compromises and letting your walls down and exposing yourself and making yourself vulnerable, look, you may be setting yourself up for a major problem further down the road. So be careful. 
Be careful here. He begins to allow the enemy to come in and have access and to see all these things. So verse 14, Isaiah the prophet once again goes to him to challenge him regarding this. He went to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say? And from where did they come? And Hezekiah said, oh, they came from, notice, a far country from Babylon. In other words, they're nothing to worry about. They're from far away. And he said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered and said, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Never good to give full access to those who are not in alignment with the Lord. Never a good thing. That's always a very dangerous place to go. Verse 16, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Boy, his heart must have sunk as he heard that prophetic word of the Lord. These will be the next world empire and they are going to conquer you And he says, and carry you away like captives to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget. And they shall be eunuchs in the the palace of the king of Babylon. You might want to write in your Bible there, your notes, Daniel chapter 1. Because that's exactly what will happen. And Daniel 1 describes how Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, these young men who ultimately are taken from Jerusalem when Babylon comes and conquers them, and they are brought back to serve as eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon, exactly how God prophesied it would. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord, which you have spoken is good. In other words, what God says is fair and, and just. It's I can't deny God has exposed me for my error. So he said, will there be peace and truth at least in my days? In other words, you know, is this going to come to pass uh, in the near future? When will this happen? Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah, verse 20, and all his might and how he made a pool, take notice, and a tunnel and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Hezekiah rested with his fathers, and then Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. Interesting, one little other footnote, we get kind of the end of Hezekiah's reign here before we transition to the next king. Verse 20 makes mention of this uh, mechanical engineering process that was done under King Hezekiah's supervision, uh, often referred to as Hezekiah's tunnel. It says how he made a pool and a tunnel to bring water into the city. And again, under Hezekiah's reign, recognizing when the Assyrians came and tried to lay siege, and later on the Babylonians will come and do the same thing, he realized that a city, when cut off from water supply, Uh, is all the more vulnerable to being captured more quickly. So what he did, again, keep in mind, Jerusalem has no natural water supply where it's built at. So what he does is the Gihon Springs, which is outside the city, he basically causes a bunch of workers to do an engineering masterpiece and they tunnel through solid bedrock over 1,700 feet long from each end 
through bedrock from the Gihon Springs to the Pool of Siloam, basically an underground tunnel so that there would be a source of fresh water to be brought into the city during the time when the siege would come against them. And then they would basically cover up the water supply at the Gihon Springs. The water would run underground and be able to feed fresh water into the city. And again, this incredible act of engineering that was uh, orchestrated under the reign of King Hezekiah. To this day, the Hezekiah's tunnel is still there. If you go to Israel, you want to take a walk through it. If you're not claustrophobic, God bless you. I've been there. No, thank you. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, just this is a very incredible thing that was done under the reign of Hezekiah. Well, he now dies and verse 20, or chapter 21 tells us his son Manasseh, comes to the throne and certainly not much encouraging to read about Manasseh. Uh, In fact, it's very dark and dismal, but let's just read a little bit about Manasseh's life before we close. It says Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. So imagine this, a 12 year old and he reigned 55 years. That's a long reign. 55 years. Five and a half decades, he starts out as a 12-year-old, takes the throne, and here's the thing, Manasseh is one of the most wicked, evil, ungodly kings to ever reign in Judah, and yet he's allowed to reign for 55 years. Imagine 55 years of an evil king ruling upon the throne nationally in verse 2 look at just the description i mean it's disheartening just to read it and he did evil in the sight of the lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the lord had cast out before the children of israel for he rebuilt the high places which hezekiah his father had destroyed he raised up altars for baal and made wooden images as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, right? In God's house, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. So look what happens. You have Hezekiah, who remember, as we talked about, there was this good godly king. He restored everything back into the temple. He brought, if you would, a, a spiritual renewal. He cleaned out the house of the Lord. He got rid of all the foreign idolatrous practices. He restored God's worship system and sacrifices and the priesthood that everybody would get back to work the way God wanted them to. And notice now his son, being raised by this very godly father, comes to the throne and he basically just reverses everything this father had just done. It says there that he rebuilt all the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He raised back up the altars to Baal and the wooden images and all the things that involve worshiping the hosts of heaven, astrology and all the... And and again, what another strong indication that you can have good, godly parents doing a wonderful job raising their children, giving the best example possible... But those kids, they got a free will. Manasseh couldn't say, well, I didn't have a good dad. I didn't have a godly example. I didn't have a good upbringing. I wasn't raised in the house of the Lord. Manasseh had all that, and he chose to disregard the God of his father. He chose to disobey what he was exposed to his whole life long of what was good and right, and to just live selfishly, wickedly, and immorally anyway. 
And again, I think this is just something of a good reminder to us that you know the reality is people have a free will. And certainly I think there's a much higher percentage if we do what's good and right as parents that we give a much better chance that our kids are going to walk with the Lord and serve Him. But there's no guarantee because they have freedom to still choose and walk out their own life. And Manasseh here is a fitting example. He was one of the most wicked men to ever reign upon the throne after having a very good and godly father reigning before him. Verse 5, he built altars for the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his son pass through the fire. Again, a child sacrifice, his own child, he literally sacrificed. Verse 6, he practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, consulted spiritists, and medium, so channeling the dead, channeling spirits. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even, that is the emphasis, verse 7, he even, if that weren't enough, set a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of the Lord, the house of David and Solomon, his son, saying, where God had said, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever and will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers only, notice, if they are careful to do according to all I've commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses has commanded them. So verse seven kind of wants to drive home, even after all these other things, the wicked behaviors, practicing soothsaying, witchcraft, spiritist, mediums, idolatry, all these things that provoke God to anger. He then says, verse 7, he even set a carved image of Asherah right in God's house. And the carved image of Asherah was basically an obscene statue, a perverted statue. The idea is, you know, a, a perverse, sexually obscene image or statue, and he put it right in God's house. Just complete disregard for God. No fear of God. No concern for what God would think about things. Just, again, shows you the hardness and the depravity of this man's heart. His brazen rebellion against God. I mean, imagine that. Just taking something filthy and not only just doing it in the privacy of your own house. He brought it right into God's house. Sexual sin, immorality, pornography, right into God's house. Just introducing it right into God's house. Verse 9, it says, they paid no attention. They paid no attention and Manasseh seduced them. That is, people paid no more attention to God and they were being seduced instead by their political leader to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before them. And the Lord spoke by his servants, the prophets. God begins to send word now as we finish up about Manasseh's life. Look, God sent warnings because Manasseh King of Judah has done these abominations and acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. So uh, God says, I will stretch verse 13 over Jerusalem, the measuring line of Samaria. The idea is the same measuring line God used for Samaria who fell in defeat to the Assyrians because of their rebellion against God and their wickedness, God says, I measure equally. I don't show partiality. So God says the same measuring line, because how does God measure lives? Morally. How does God measure nations? Morally. 
And so God says, the same measuring line that I used for Samaria, the plummet of the house of Ahab, I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies because they have done evil in my sight and provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. So notice, the Bible tells us, Galatians 2 and other places, that God shows partiality to no man. And that same thing applies to nations. God doesn't show partiality to any nation. And the same way Samaria, ultimately, as they were measured by God's standard of righteousness and morality, once they crossed the line, the judgment of God came upon them as a nation in the north. And God says, look, no different for Judah. Once they crossed the line, and it was under Manasseh's reign that it seems they kind of finally crossed that threshold of evil and rebellion and sinful wickedness that God finally said judgment is pronounced upon them. And ultimately it will come from the Babylonian peoples who will come and conquer them. Verse 16 says, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood. Take notice of that. Till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides his sin by which he made Jerusalem sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and the sin that he committed are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Manasseh rested with his fathers and he was buried in the garden of his own house in the garden of Uzzah and then his son Ammon reigned in his place. Isn't it interesting, as the Bible talks about the fall of the nation of Judah, the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah, it lists all these sinful activities that their king and their political leader had introduced into the land. It lists all these evil things that the people and the nation were doing. And the very last thing that God chooses to list by his spirit, verse 16 it's almost as if God says, this is where the line snaps. He says, verse 16, Manasseh, their king, shed very much innocent blood. They lost sense of the value of life. They were murdering and putting to death innocent people. Innocent bloodshed. Those who were dying unnecessarily, they were shedding much innocent blood till they filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. And it's almost as if God said, when you sink that low, that's the end. That's the end of a nation, God says. That nation at that point has sunk to a place where the judgment of God must come upon it. Now, let me leave you with one interesting thought to consider. You read all of that about Manasseh, and again, I encourage you, just reread that again and think about all the description. Second Chronicles chapter 33 tells us that at the end of Manasseh's life, he repents. That he humbles himself before the Lord and he realizes all the wicked things that he had done and he genuinely has a broken spirit and a contrite heart and he repents back towards the Lord and the Lord forgives him and he uses the latter stages of his life before he dies to try and turn the tide back the other way. Now, that's one of those occasions where you go, wow, you want to talk about some amazing grace. Who would have ever thought Manasseh 
would repent, could repent, that God would allow him to repent. But you know what? The Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Look, if you're here tonight and you're thinking, if you had any idea of my list, things I've done in my life, the stains, the things I'm guilty of, the horrible things that look, look at Manasseh's list. And God let him repent. And God was merciful and God changed him. How much more the blood of Jesus Christ, the Bible says, cleanses us from all sin. We have a much greater sufficiency for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's stand together. Let's pray.